0: Amen. Well, our story starts today. Uh, it's kind of late, late in the morning on a beautiful summer day, and he's driven here to this park where he's, he's come a lot here the last couple years, um, and this, this time he's pulling in the parking lot, he is uh, locking his car, got his, his backpack, and he's headed out for the highest point in this park. This park is a beautiful park. It's about eighty-five acres, and it's a mixture of developed and undeveloped lands. There's, down below, there's sand volleyball courts. There's picnic benches. There's a place for kids to play. But as you as you go up the kind of the sloping hills, uh, you come to kind of grass areas that extend for a long way. Some of it's just wilderness area, not developed. But at the very top of the the highest hill and these rolling hills is a gazebo, and that's where he's headed. And this is where he's come the last couple of years, uh, come often for times of reflection, times of prayer, times of reading, um, seek God, and, and on this day, it's, uh, it's kind of a time of rapid growth in his life. And so after he goes up to the gazebo and spent some significant time there that he decides to begin to stroll slowly back to his car about 15 minutes away, None on the way, just doing kind of a, a, a random prayer walk. And as he does, uh, his mind is reflecting back on this incredible year. All the sights, the sounds, the new experiences, the new things he's heard, new things he's learned. And as he goes around a corner, and there's a large rock there, suddenly a question comes to his mind. A question that's going to take him back. A question that's going to set him on his heels. A question that's destined to change the direction of his life forever. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in since the beginning of last year, or this year, that's called Signs, A Path to Life. And for those of you who are new, and I know every week we have new people coming, join us, whether it's here on our campus or online. For those of you who are new, this is a a kind of an in-depth study of the life of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man that we know as John, or we now call him the Apostle John, who towards the end of his life writes his account of his firsthand experiences with Jesus in the two or three years that they traveled together. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've focused in on this seventh uh, supernatural sign That Jesus has performed uh, right before his arrest and execution, uh, where he's returned to this small village of Bethany that's just a couple miles, less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. And he's raised a friend of his by the name of Lazarus from the dead after being in the grave for four days. And uh, as a result, there's sort of a, a warrant out for his arrest from the, the, the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem who him a threat to their position, a threat to the future of the nation. Um, and so, so today we're going to watch as John kind of highlights the next key event that he wants to highlight in the life of Jesus. And so it's found in John chapter 12. There in your note sheet, you have a section. Is called Signs of the Anointing. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps. Let's go ahead and open up to Acts. I mean to John chapter 12. We're going to pick it up at, at verse 1. So as we do, let's set the stage. Uh, John's going to tell us it's the Saturday before Jesus' arrest and execution. So Jesus will be executed on a Friday. This event's going to happen six days before that day, the Passover. Uh, so it's going to be happening on a Saturday. So it says six days before the Passover on that Saturday, Jesus came to Bethany. Now remember, this is a dangerous territory for him. There's a war now for his arrest. They're very close to the city. And so he's entering into harm's way. And of course, this is where Lazarus lived. We've we've learned that before, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead. He's got these two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're going to play into this story as well. And so uh, on this particular day, on a Saturday, they're giving a special dinner. Someone's hosting a dinner. It says, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Now, in John's account, he doesn't tell us where this dinner was held, whose home, but it's interesting because if you were to look at your, the references on your note sheet, if you were to look at Matthew and Mark, they both describe a very similar event that we believe is probably the same event as the one that we are watching, we're going to be reading here. And in that event, this, this, place, this, this event, this banquet, this dinner is going to take place in the home of a man named Simon the leper all right? Now, if he's he's, really a leper, my hunch is by this time, Jesus has healed him. But you know how old names stick, like from great, great school. He's like, that's Simon the leper. I'm not a leper. It's like, yeah, but I still know you that way. So anyway, so throughout this passage, I'll be bringing a few more details in from their account. So uh, so here in verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And uh, Martha, now we know Martha, she was a sister of Lazarus who's been raised from the dead, probably the older sister. She seems to be always in charge. And so, uh, so Martha served while Lazarus was among those in Cetius, reclining at the table with him. And so we need to picture this. Th- this is not like a dinner we would go to today where we're all sitting in chairs around, you know, kind of regular sized tables. Uh, this was a fancy dinner, and so they're they're eating the dinner in uh, Roman style. And you say, well, what's Roman style? Well, I want you to picture uh, a set of tables that are designed uh, like in a big U, all right? So if you are if you go here where my thumbs touch, this is where the head of the table, the, kind of the host of the table would be sitting. And then all around the outside of the U, all around here, there would be men, men only at this dinner. and They would be positioned around the outside. So the table is only 18 inches off the ground. So they're gonna be, these men are gonna be lying with their heads Heads towards the center of the U, facing in, their feet away. They're gonna be leaning on their left uh, left elbow, propping themselves up. So you can do the thing, you've seen this, you know, eating the grapes, right? So they can be eating uh, the different food. Now, what's great about this setup is, is that because there's nothing in the middle of the U, it allows waiters, waitresses to bring food in, resupply drinks, and so on. So that's the scene, right? So so they're around, Martha's coming in, she's one of the servers serving in the middle of the U, and uh, they're all around the outside. And into this, something startling is going to happen. In verse three, we see Mary, the other sister, she shows up. And she's going to approach from the back. So she's going to kind of sneak up on this. Remember, it's all male in here. And she's going to sneak up on the back. And she's bringing with her a pint of pure nard. Now, everything about this, especially if, it, if, if we've got it right, that this is at the house of Simon the leper, not their house. Everything about this sounds very premeditated. Um, this is a dinner to honor Jesus. Remember, recently he's raised, Jesus has raised her brother from the dead, as we'll see later. Mary's become very close with Jesus, so she wants to honor him. And so she has brought a pint of what is described as pure nard. Now, as we'll see, this is extremely valuable. In fact, later on, we'll be told that this pint is worth a full year's labor. So put it in today's terms. This might not be perfectly accurate, but in today's terms, I did the math. If you were making minimum wage here in L.A., this would be, and uh, working full-time, it would be like $35,000, $36,000, right? And so, so it doesn't translate exactly, but this is worth a year's worth of wages. And so she, and the reason it's so expensive is because this, uh, this nard was made from this particular plant We just get a little bit of nard from each, each plant or each blossom. It takes a lot of this to make a pint. And this is all made in India. This is all imported from India. So this is extremely valuable, uh, very likely her most valuable possession. And so, it's not the sort of thing you just carry around with you in your purse all the time. I'm sure she's got it in her home in a safe place, but it sounds like she's premeditated. She's brought this to this. She wants to honor Jesus. And so, normally, you would only use a drop or two to anoint someone, uh, it has a very strong fragrance but she's gonna do the unthinkable. She's gonna break this vial and she's gonna pour the entire thing on Jesus. Now, in John's account, he's gonna say she put it on his feet, but in, uh, in Matthew and in Mark's account, they're gonna say feet and head. And so she comes in, she comes in from behind. She has this and a pure nard, an expensive perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet and then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, this is a way of giving her best, so to speak. Like normally, you'd wash feet with water, you'd wipe it off with a towel. I don't know if you remember this, but back in John chapter one, John the Baptist, this is what he, the way he described Jesus. He is so much greater than I, that I'm not even uh, worthy to be his slave, to take off his sandals, to wash his feet, right? That was John's way of saying, I don't know how to, how to say this like any, any bigger, but like, I'm not worthy to be his slave. Well, this is Mary's way of saying something very similar. He's so valuable to me. I'm gonna take this incredible stuff that you normally just give a little bit to and I'm gonna put the whole thing on him and then I'm not gonna wash his feet with a towel. I'm gonna to take the, the, kind of the, the place of my beauty, my hair. I'm gonna let down my hair. I'm gonna wash his feet with my hair. It's like sort of the ultimate, it's like how do you say it in any more graphic way of an, an act of love, of devotion, and of worth, right? Now, for those of us here or even those watching online, my my hunch is that for many of us, we've heard this account. So we get kind of dulled to it, right? And we see this as a very noble thing that she's doing. But what I want you to catch is if we were there, chances are we wouldn't have. In fact, we're told that his disciples, in fact, in Matthew and Mark, they say that many of his disciples are just blown away. And not in the sense of a good thing, they're blown away with what a waste. So she's offering this as an incredible act of almost like worship, but they're seeing it as an incredible act of waste. Now, in John's account, he's going to zoom in on one of the disciples who are grumbling. And the one he zooms in in is Judas, who's going to betray Jesus later this week. And the reason he zooms in is because of the unique role that Judas is going to play in the plot line being the betrayer, right? But but Matthew and Mark make it clear. It's not just Judas. It's like many of the disciples are feeling like this is like, it's one thing to honor Jesus, but let's not go overboard here. All right, let's not get too finale, let's don't get too crazy about this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's the Lord, you know, but let's not go crazy. And so anyway, so she pours this out, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who is later to betray him, he objected. So many were upset, but he's the one who speaks. And he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Jesus apparently often would give to the poor. He says, hey, we should have sold this and given it to the poor. He says, it was worth a year's wages. Now, John puts in this sidebar, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Interesting. All right. Now, this is really interesting because obviously John and the rest of the disciples did not know this at the time. If they had known this at the time, they would have stopped it. This is something they obviously learned later, probably from Jesus after the resurrection. But it says, uh, he says, as keeper of the money bag. So he was actually the treasure, catch us very trusted member of the 12. Uh, you know, like you, if you're going to have someone, you know, you're going to trip, you're going to pull your money and you're, you're going to give it to the person you think is trustworthy. And so he says uh, he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. We're going to talk about this later. I doubt this started at the very beginning of his relationship with Jesus. I'm thinking there was a, a major point where he began to do this later on. So Jesus is going to jump to her defense, and he's going to say, hey, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, honestly, we're not really sure, and scholars aren't sure, like, like what is, what Jesus is saying here. Even the Greek's a little weird, kind of hard to, to figure it out, but it, it seems like either one of two things is going on. Either Mary has a sense of premonition that Jesus might be dying soon, and, and that's very possible because there, the, there's a warrant out for his arrest. They've decided to kill him. Everyone knows that. So, so it could be that, that she just wants to get in while he's still alive, but Uh, probably more likely, I'm thinking, is that that she's just doing this out of her love for Jesus, but Jesus sees in this more than meets the eye. That he's the only one there that realizes that within a week he's gonna be executed and there's not gonna be time to anoint him in the proper way. Remember, that's why the woman went back on Sunday to anoint his body, because then able to do a great job uh, on Friday. And uh, so he sees more of this. But uh, then John says, but meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. Remember, he's a celebrity by this point. It's Passover. The city's packed with pilgrims. Uh, People are hearing, like, is he going to come or not because it's so dangerous? But they hear he's there. And so they're starting to come out to Bethany because of him. But they also are coming out to see Lazarus, who's become a second main attraction. It's not every day you get to see a guy who's been dead for four days. And so they're... He's been raised from the dead. So the chief priests, they're just super bummed about this. I mean, they've already made the decision. Last week we saw it. We got to take out Jesus. We're losing control of the situation. Now they're realizing we're going to take out not Jesus, we're going to take out Lazarus too. Uh, By the way, just a quick sidebar, isn't this how sin works in our life? One compromise leads to another, one lie leads to another. In their case, remember what Caiaphas said? Hey, you guys know nothing. The high priest, he said, hey, we're gonna have to take out one guy for the sake of the nation. Well, now they're not taking out one guy, they're gonna take out two, to, two guys, right? And so the, they, they say uh, in verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well uh, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. All right, so that's the passage. Now, that, that's Saturday uh, Next week, we look at Sunday, where Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, what we call Palm Sunday, to the praise of the crowds, like the kind of the the welcome of a rock star. We're going to see what happens, but for today, uh, we're going to focus on this incredible event, uh, Mary's anointing, but specifically, I want to ask the question: Like, what does it mean to be a, a follower of Jesus in light of this? And how do we grow in our relationship with Jesus? So today, to get at this, I'm just going to ask two questions. They're in your note sheet. See the section of signs two key questions, and so let me give you the first one. Um, you can fill in the blanks, but. As you do, I don't want you to answer this immediately, all right? I want you to show some self-control. Hold off. I don't want a Sunday school answer here. I don't want a Pollyanna answer here. I want a real answer, and that's going to take some time for us to probe. So here we go. Here's a question. How much is Jesus worth to you? So we've seen today how much Jesus was worth to Mary, but the question is, how much is Jesus worth to you? Now, in this account, there are two main characters other than Jesus. The first is Mary, who, who gives Jesus everything she has. The second is Judas, who's really upset. So I want you to help me out here. We're going we're to draw a little diagram on your note sheet, all right? So I want you, it's a very simple diagram. You say, I can't draw, you can do this. So just draw a straight line like a spectrum across your note sheet, like a spectrum. Now, once you've done that, on the right side of the spectrum, I want you to write underneath the line, I want you to write the number 10. Now, go all the way to the left of the spectrum and write underneath the number 1. Now, go back to the right and above the 10 and above the line, write the word Mary And then when you're done with that, go all the way to the left and above the zero, we're gonna write the word Judas because he's like heading there, all right? So uh, this is like a um, kind of a a love, a commitment, a devotion, a passion spectrum, right? How much is Jesus worth to you? We got Mary at one end, she's the 10. Uh, We got Judas at the other end, he's like a one becoming a zero. Uh, And right in the middle, I want you to draw a line in the middle The halfway part, we'll call that five. And above that, we're going to call it lukewarm, all right? Lukewarm Christian. And this will give you some sort of idea. Now, the question I'm really asking is where would you put yourself on the spectrum at this point in your life? And I want to explore that. Now, what I want to do is I want to explore the spiritual journeys these two key characters in this account of Mary and uh, and Judas. Because here's what I want you to catch. Neither one of them started where they ended up. When we put Mary as a 10 and we put uh, Judas as a zero, that's at this point in time, on this day of the anointing. But neither of them started there. They both ended up at their respective places as a result of a journey. So let's talk about their journeys. Let's start with Mary. Now, let's ask the question, like, what do we know about Mary? Well, if all we had was John's gospel, frankly, we wouldn't know much about her before this event. The first time we met her was in chapter 11 in the account about Lazarus, right? And even there, she did not play a starring role. She was more of an extra in the story. Uh, Martha was the, had the primary role there, the conversation she had and so on. It was about Martha. Mary, always saw, we saw that when Jesus came back to Bethany, she went out to meet him eventually. Remember, she falls on her face. She sobs and says, if you'd been here, this would not have happened. That's all we know except for one other detail that's very important. Very early in John 11, John tells us, he introduces us to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and this is what he said. He said, and Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He doesn't clump them together. He said, each and now, this strikes me as very significant because if you study the gospel account, off the top of my head, and I didn't check it out this week, but off the top of my head, I believe there's only one other place where a gospel writer specifically says Jesus loves someone. And it's, it's in the account in Mark of the rich young ruler. And so this seems very significant to me that John, when he's writing this, he starts it off, now Mary, uh, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He was very close. And you say, well, how does that happen? Obviously, they have a relationship that's grown over time. And so let's go back to the beginning of Mary's story. When did she first meet Jesus? When did she first hear about Jesus? We don't know. Was it when Jesus came through Bethany on the way to Jerusalem, maybe taught there for the first time? Uh, it's very likely that they, since they only lived two miles out of town. It's very likely that when Jesus would come, and his, he was becoming a rising star in the, in the nation, as he was teaching in Jerusalem and often there several times a year for the holidays, it's, it's very possible they heard him there. But w- however they first were introduced to Jesus, they were all taken with Jesus to the extent that they started inviting him to spend the night when he was in town at their house. Now, the text, no text tells us how often he did this, but very likely that he did this often when he was in Jerusalem. He would come during holiday seasons when the city was packed, no place to get room, so whatever, very crowded. It would be very convenient to stop there. We know that he got very close to them. So it sounds like he's probably there several times. And so that's what we know. We, we know that at some point she met. Now, when she first met him or first heard him, he, you know, he would have been maybe like a zero to her, right? Like, she's very low on the scale. She's just meeting him. But as she begins to listen, her relationship begins to grow. And at certain points along the way, she, she, she comes to critical crossroads in her relationship with Jesus. And I think one of the most important critical crossroads is detailed for us in Luke chapter 10. And so we don't know exactly when this happened in terms of how, how long she known Jesus. It's possible that this event happened the very first time. He, he, he stayed at their house, but my hunch was not. So here's what we're going to see happen what we're going to see happen is that Jesus stops in, in Bethany. He's traveling probably to Jerusalem. And uh, he's, you know, he travels with his posse, right? He's like 12 guys. So when Jesus shows up, it's kind of a crisis if you're in charge of providing meals for him. And so what we're going to see is that they show up and Martha, uh, probably the older sister, um, she always acts like she's the boss. um, And she's usually mentioned first, but she is hustling around the house, getting dinner ready, maybe getting beds ready. And, and what's gonna happen is that Mary is gonna do something sort of unthinkable. Mary is gonna go and sit at the feet of Jesus, catches as if she were a male disciple. Now, in that culture, most rabbis would not even talk to a woman walking down the street other than their wife let alone teach women. Rabbis wouldn't teach women. Um, Rabbis wouldn't let women sit at their feet and teach. That that was not a woman's role in that culture. And yet what we're going to see is that that something has happened in the relationship with Jesus that Mary is going to risk this. She's going to come and sit at his feet as if she's a male disciple, which is kind of blowing against all the, tradi- the tradition, the cultural values of her day. She's probably opening herself up to criticism. But catch this, she's also taking a risk with Jesus, isn't she? Like, what if, what if Jesus sends her away? What if Jesus- and so, obviously, by this time, her confidence in Jesus has risen to the place where she thinks that although this is kind of crazy, that he's going to be okay with this. So let's see what happens. So Luke chapter 10. So as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to a village. We know that's Bethany where there's a woman named Martha opened her house. Notice how it's Martha opened the house. It's like she's in charge and she has a sister called Mary and Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Now, Martha is going to get very irritated at this. Not only is Mary breaking with all cultural norms, but there's a lot to do, and she's kind of shirking her responsibility as, as a woman in this house. And so you can tell she's really irritated. So Martha, so Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and so she comes to Jesus, and you can hear the sass in her voice. She says to him, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has let me do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Okay? She's just kind of helping Jesus out here, letting him know what's the appropriate right thing to be doing. Let's get on with it. And, uh, and so Jesus is going to let her down gently. Now, I think Martha often gets a bad rap. You know, from this account, I mean, how many sermons have ripped on Martha, Right? Uh, but the reality is we see in chapter 11, she was actually very close to Jesus. Jesus loved her when they had those amazing, profound uh, conversations. And so I'd hate to be characterized and remembered forever by the stupidest thing I ever did. Um, but that's how he, so what, notice how gentle he is with her. And she's so going to let her down. He's going to correct her, but he's going to be very gentle. He says, Martha, Martha. <laughs> now, I don't know. As a parent, you know, like when you're a kid and your parent says your name twice, you know it's not going to be good. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord said, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Hey, in life, there's only a few things that are really, truly important. And then he goes on, he says, in fact, or indeed only one. There's one thing most important in life, and that's our relationship with God. And that's what, that's what Mary is seeking, right? And so he says, so Mary has chosen what's better, and I, it will not be taken away from her. Notice how gentle he is. He doesn't even say, I'm not going to stop her. He, he says it will, he puts it in the passive voice, it will not be taken away from her. From her, right? So he, he, now here's what I want to suggest. I, th- I think this is a major crossroad in Mary's life, right? She has to decide uh, whether to risk a reputation, go and sit at the feet of, whether to trust him. Um, and, and not only does Jesus receive her, he defends her, right? And then we see another major crossroad of her life is when her brother dies and she's heartbroken. And we just looked at this the last couple of weeks. And and, and and remember that as a result of Jesus raising her brother from the dead, remember her view of Jesus went to a whole new level. Her love for him grew. And so that leads to this event that we're reading about today. What I want you to catch is Mary didn't come out with the $36,000 vial the first time she met Jesus. That's what I want you to catch. Her relationship grew with Jesus just like ours does. And as a result of this spiritual journey with Jesus, she comes to this place where at this moment in life, she's a 10. She wasn't always a 10, but she's come to this place where now she's willing to give him everything she has, all right? So let's talk about now the other character in the story. Let's talk about Judas. Let's talk about his journey because he Is a zero today, like a one or a zero today? By the way, I don't know if I said this, you know, three services run together, but uh, Matthew and Mark make it clear that it's after this event that was the final major crossroads in his life. It was after this event that he was so disgusted with Jesus, he went out and brokered a deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. Jesus. So this is a critical crossroad for him. But let's talk about his journey. He, he ends up here as a zero, but what I want you to get, not where he started. What do we know about Judas? Well, we don't know a lot, but we can put together from some obvious, simple things. First of all, that there was a time when Judas was very passionate about Jesus. I mean, after all, of all the disciples, Jesus chose him to be one of the twelve. And and remember that that Judas had left everything to follow Jesus, just like the other 12. There's a passage in Mark's gospel where Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And Jesus will say, oh, you you got hundredfold uh, return, right? And so, so Judas was part of that us. He was part of the we, we've left everything. Judas has left everything, he's followed with Jesus. And we get a fascinating uh, fascinating account earlier in Luke's gospel where Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. Do you remember that? And when he sends them out, he says, I want you to go and preach, like, let people know the kingdom of God is near. Um, He said, as you go, I want you to heal the sick. I want you to free people up from demonization. And he sends them out to go on this kind of big trip going through the villages of Israel, right? And so when they come back, Jesus said, how did God? They said, it was awesome. They said, even the demons responded to our commands. And what I want you to catch is no one said, it's super weird and we were healing the sick. We were casting out demons. But it's just weird is that Judas is the one guy it didn't work for. Just so odd. What a, I, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. Like, like going into this event here, no one has any idea that Judas is on a spiritual journey at the wrong direction. We'll see this in a couple of weeks when Jesus at the Last Supper, just coming, you know, this is Saturday, then Thursday night, Last Supper, and Jesus will blow the disciples away and he'll tell them, One of you is going to betray me. And do you remember how they responded? No one said, Oh, I know it is, probably Judas. <laughs> he had something been wrong with that guy from the start, day one, you know? like No one, you you remember that? Everyone says they're completely baffled. They have no idea who it could be. They're so confused. They're like, is it me? So what I want you to catch is that as we look in this dinner, Judas is seen as a passionate follower of Jesus. Jesus. But somewhere, so he didn't start off at a zero, that he gave his whole life to follow Jesus. At some point in his life, if he wasn't a 10, he was an eight or nine. He was fully committed to Jesus. But what's happened to Judas? Well, along the way, he's become increasingly disappointed and disillusioned by Jesus. Jesus is not turning out to be the Messiah he thought he would be. He's not going to kick out Rome. There's a warrant out for his arrest. Judas, I'm sure, is concerned that he's about to be executed. This is looking bad. And I need to get on the right side of history. I need to, I need to go find his enemies. I need to broker a deal. This thing is going south. I've made the biggest mistake of my life investing two or three years in a guy I thought was Messiah. And here's my hunch is that somewhere along the line as he began to move down that scale, at some point, it probably wasn't at first he was pilfering from the money, but as as time's going on, he's realized that this is not, this is not the Messiah that's gonna lead to power and possessions and popularity it's not going to happen, and, and I've given up so much, I need to start taking some back. I need to start preparing for my future. My hunch was there was a critical crossroad moment where, where Judas made the decision to start stealing. And then we come to this particular day, and this pushes him over the, over the edge. Are you, in, are you in ki- kidding me? Who does this guy think he is? Are you kidding me that he'll, he'll let a woman spill 50,000 bucks on his feet? Why, like, who does he think he is? This is ridiculous. I am out of here. And he leaves that evening, that dinner, and he goes into town, and he has a secret meeting with the men he know are plotting to kill Jesus. And he says, listen, what will you give me? I'm switching sides. And they said, well, we'll give you a month's salary. A little more than a month's salary. And he says, well, at least that's something to get started in my new life. And he makes the deal. What I want you to catch, he didn't start at zero. At a certain point in his life, he was at eight or a nine or a 10. But over time, he's been trending down. So here's the question. In light of this scene, this is a question that I have for you kind of before the Lord, not before your, your spouse or their friend or whoever's next to you. You don't even have to write it because that'd be kind of embarrassing. Just think it in your head. Where would you put yourself on this scale of your love, your passion, your devotion, your commitment, your loyalty to Jesus at this point in your life? And then, and then this, the second part of that of question one, which way are you trending? Can I tell you, one of the saddest things that I ever see or hear is when I, ha- when I hear that a, a, a long-time believer, maybe they've been following Jesus 30 or 40 years, and I'll hear this happen sometimes. I'll talk to younger believers. They've been following Jesus a year or two, and they're, they're so impassioned, so fire on him. And then they'll talk about an older believer who's come to him and, and, and said, you know what, yeah, we were all there once. Hey, but just give it time, you know, that that'll just over time you'll you'll just mellow out. Just trust me. You know what that older believer is doing? They're justifying their slide. And so what they're saying is like, hey, you may look like you're a seven or eight, but but you know, this is like a rocket ship that's gonna go up and, and it'll go up, but then it's gonna lose its fuel and it's gonna drop down to earth, and pretty soon you'll be a three like the rest of us. It's a way of evening leveling the playing field so that that older believer doesn't have to explain why they've slid so far down the scale. All right, so this leads to a second question. And the second question, I think, is actually as important, probably more important than the first. So the first question is, how much is Jesus worth to you? The second question is, how much do you want Jesus to be worth to you? So we've talked about these two players, right? We've talked about these two characters. We've talked about Mary being at a 10, Judas at a zero. We've looked at the spiritual journeys. We've talked about key critical crossroads. Like, Like when Mary invited Jesus to stay at the house, when she decided to risk her reputation and sit at his feet, after she saw him raise her brother from the dead, and finally this last one, kind of giving her all to Jesus, We've seen her, we've seen Judas's critical crossroads, right? We've seen early on the disillusionment, the decision to steal, the decision to to betray him. And I think this is often the way our spiritual life works. In our spiritual life, often we we go through certain critical crossroads. And, And what we decide at these critical crossroads determines whether we continue moving up the scale or down the scale. I want to share with you like one of these critical crossroads from my life. And honestly, I'm always a little bit, feel a little off, uh, a little bit awkward or uh, sharing this because it's not as if like this is a model for everyone. Um, it's just an example from my own life. It's the only examples I have, right? Like, that flow out of my own life. So take it for what it's worth. But I went through one of these critical crossroads when I was 18. Right? So uh, let's go back to the story that we started the day with. We started the day with this story of this man who's, who's come into this park that's played such a big role in his life the last couple of years. Locks the door, hikes up to the high point in the park, the gazebo, spends some significant time, moves down, kind of a stroll, strolls through uh, down to this wilderness area and begins to reflect on the past year of his life. And, and as he's reflecting on that, this critical question comes up. So this is a story from my life. When I was 17, I left, from, left for college. Uh, I left from Southern California. You know, I, lived, I, I grew up in North San Diego County in Vista, and uh, so I left to go to uh, a Christian college, a Christian liberal arts school in the Midwest, and it's one of the most respected Christian liberal arts schools in the world. And because of that, every week we would have kind of top spiritual leaders, uh, authors, ministry leaders, pastors coming through and speaking four times a week at our chapels. And so it would be like, you know, and back in there, it'd be like people like Billy Graham and Luis Palau and just super, you know, like famous people um, that were coming in and sharing with us. And then a couple times a year, we'd have a spiritual emphasis week where we'd have like really high power people come in a week of of kind of extra meetings and chapels but in the evening as well and so so i would gotten to college for my freshman year and i'd been exposed to these amazing leaders and so now i'm back at home after my freshman year i'm going to this park this 85 acre park that's in vista it's called bringle terrace park It's a place I've gone many times in the last couple of years. God had used it in a powerful way in my life. And this was a time of rapid growth. And so I get out of my car. I walk to the top of the hill. I spend some time in the gazebo. And afterwards, I'm walking down, kind of doing a prayer walk as I come through sort of these, you know, this kind of wilderness area. And as I'm walking through, for whatever reason, my mind is reflecting back on all these speakers and leaders I've heard this last year. And for whatever reason, I can't remember why, I began to categorize them in my mind into two categories. And the first category was by far the largest. And these were men and women who had spoken to us. They were respected people. They loved the word of God. They, they were living Christian lifestyle, great, great Christian lifestyle lives. And they were leading some kind of ministry or writing books, doing something significant in the kingdom, right? Right. And, and so I called these all these leaders, or many more, I called them, and it's kind of made up this language at the time. Um, it wasn't the best language. Um, I still don't think it's the best, but this is what I kind of categorized them at the time. I called them Christian lifestyle leaders. A lot to respect in their life. But there was a second category that was different. This kind of person, um, they also... Love the word. They also were leading great Christian lifestyles. They also uh, were doing something significant in the kingdom. You know, authors, leaders, teachers, pastors, whatever. Um, but there was something special about them. <laughs> like that, when you listened to them, it wasn't what they were doing for God that got your attention. It wasn't their lifestyle that got your attention what got your attention was their core relationship with Jesus. That as you listened to them, you had a sense of their passion for Jesus. You had a sense of this two-way communication, a sense of a firsthand experience. I mean, they talked about Jesus as if he were just real. It wasn't just what they believed, it's what they experience they knew firsthand and it was like their, their passion and their relationship overshadowed everything else and so it's like well yeah yeah they're doing that and yeah they're leading this ministry and yeah yeah but it's that's not what you picked up on that what you sensed was this passion for jesus kind of like mary And so I'm walking along and I'm thinking about this for whatever reason and I'm categorizing and and I I had a name for these people. It's the best I could do. I still don't like it today. But what I call them is Lord and Lover Christians (laughs) because (laughs) that's how it struck me that for them, Jesus was their absolute Lord. They were completely sold out to him and their passion for him, the only thing I could compare it to was sort of the passion of maybe like a young couple in love. And so as I'm categorizing thing, I'm walking through the park, all of a sudden, I sense the Lord speaking to me, and here was his question. Which do you want to be? And can I tell you something? It was one of those deer-in-the-headlights moments because it was a deep part of me that, well, I wanted to be, like, number two. I mean, that, that's where my heart was drawn. But in that moment, I realized I had two problems. <laughs> number one is there was already someone else who was the top love of my life, like someone else already owned my heart. Lynn and I had been dating for about a year, and I was very much in love with her It was unlike any relationship I'd ever experienced about. And kind of the way I was wired, you know, everyone's sort of wired differently of like what you think would be the ideal love. But I think I'm sort of wired that finding a great love would be the secret of a great life. It's kind of the way I was wired. And and so for me, like... This experience with Lynn was so powerful, and I realized in that moment there was not room for Jesus to be my number one love because there was someone else in that spot. And the first thing I realized is that there's nothing in the world I could do to change that. This was just my perception of reality, and frankly, I thought Je- that Lynn was better than Jesus. It's like a, this: what I was experiencing with her was more powerful than experience, even though I was growing. And the second thing I realized in that moment, is not only that, I I couldn't change that. I couldn't make myself love Jesus more than Lynn. Like no amount of prayer or Bible study or fasting or whatever could could change that passion. And secondly, what really scared me is it scared me to death to think of that passion changing. Because I don't know about you, but... When there's something in life that's your number one passion, there's a reason for it. And the reason is we believe if we love and serve that thing, whatever it is, whether it's kind of rising in the organization, whether it's making more money, whether it's getting all the right toys, whether it's a person, an incredible relationship, whatever whatever that thing is that's our number one passion, we truly believe this that if we pursue that, we will find ultimate happiness and joy. And of course, the reality, as we've said before, is that the way we're designed is there's nothing in the creation that can fulfill that need for a relationship with the creator. Like what we're designed and made for him to be our first passion, like it was for Mary. And so... So in that moment when the Lord asked me, it was very scary because the thought of, of like change, that changing was terrifying to me. And I remember just standing there, now sitting there, wrestling with this. And finally I came to the place where I said, Jesus, okay, here's the thing. You know that I love Lynn more than you. Um, And you know I can't change that. It's just the way I see things. But if you can change my heart to make me love you more than her, then I give you permission to change my heart. And that was very scary to do because you're going from the one thing you know to one thing you don't know. You don't know what that's gonna be like to have those passions changed. And you know, the beautiful thing was, that's all the Lord needed, you know? And I'm telling you, he took me on a journey the next six months of incredible transformation. And you know the beautiful thing is, he didn't decrease my love for Lynn, he just increased my love for him. And you know what else? Is that, you know, in that early stages of a relationship where you're so in love and just being with that person makes life worth living, we all know that's not designed to last, right? Like research has shown, it will last from three months to maybe 18 months. I call it the rocket black stage. It doesn't last forever. And the reality is, is if I'd made the wrong choice, I would not have been able to love Lynn in the way God had called me to love her. It's only when he's our first love that we have the power to love everything else in life the right way. And so the question, when I look at this account of Mary and the spiritual journey she's been on, it raises these two questions for me. Like, where is Jesus on our scale? Which way are we trending? And then where do we want to be? Because until we come to a place where he's our first love, the universe is out of alignment in our life. It's like the, there's like a, there's a broken bone in our soul and, and we'll never be made whole. We'll never be the people we're created to be. We'll never have power to live the life we're created to live. We'll never know life to its full until that broken bone gets realigned and he becomes our first love. So the question I have for you is that Where do you want him to be? And what's the next step in your journey kind of up that scale? Let's pray together. So Lord, we come today with this incredible event and I I think of what you said about this. that You you said, Jesus, that wherever the gospel goes, that what Mary's been done will be told about her. This story made such an impression on you it was such a beautiful picture of what it means to be a passionate Christ follower. And, and so, Lord, we come today. We're, we come at all different spots on, on this scale. We come, we come, some of us moving up, some of us in the process of moving down. Well, Lord, today we, we come and we come before you. We ask, what's your vision for our life? And we, we bring our hearts before you. And we say, Lord, if, if you can change this heart, Though it's scary, we give you permission. Out of this, the rest of our lives would flow. So we pray you'd meet us now as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.